And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. Of course, it is a Monday post the great freeze of 2022. Glad you're with us this morning. <laughs> Doggies. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because everybody like up in Montana is going, it was what, 25 degrees there? We wear bathing suits in 25 <laughs> <Yeah>. degree weather. <laughs> Heat wave. I know, right? <laughs> yeah, we pretty much suck at cold weather. But uh, anyway, you know, we did survive. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, you know, no broken pipes at the house. So this is all good. Poxitani Phil notwithstanding, I'm predicting in about four weeks, we're going to be doing suntans. And exactly. They'll be here before you know it. Yeah. I mean, it's already on its way. So anyway, I hope everything worked out well this weekend. Glad you're back with us this morning. Lots of stuff to get into this week. This is going to be a big week economically. We've got more CPI inflation data coming out. Um, talk a little bit uh, for a second about that employment report on Friday, right? Much stronger than expected employment report. Saw 465,000 jobs created. That's good news. Uh, you know, good news, bad, it's a, but it's a good news, bad news thing, right? Because on the good side, hey, we created 465,000 jobs. The not so good news is that's going to help push the Federal Reserve to hike rates sooner and potentially faster uh, because now we are clearly in what they call full employment. Now, the, one of the problems, though, with, the, with this economic data is that you really kind of look at it with a grain of salt. January has normally, historically, uh, one of the largest adjustments on record. So when we take a look at the what we call the household survey, you normally see in January a seasonal adjustment of well over a million jobs normally to that number. And they're trying to and what they're trying to do is compensate for all the retail labor that gets you know either hired or or laid off right after the Christmas shopping season. This year was the biggest seasonally adjusted adjustment on record out of the 465,000 jobs created more than 300,000 of those were adjustments so if you strip out the adjustments you only had about 150,000 or so actually employed which was more in line with what the expectations were also they also came out with their adjustments for last year and what we found out was is that during the first half of last year they overestimated employment in the last half of the year they underestimated employment rather dramatically so you know all in all these are just guesses when we take a look at these numbers i mean it's really just a guess this is a, a phone call survey done on the second tuesday of every month and they're going hey what did, are you working? Are you not working? And of course, you know, you're standing there in your house, uh, you know, with pizza boxes stacked up behind you and in, in your underwear for the fifth straight week. It's like, yeah, I, I'm, I work from home. I'm, I'm employed, <laughs> self-employed, right? Okay, check. Uh, you know, so these are very, you know, very dubious, um, you know, measures of employment. You know, ADP showed a sharp drop in employment in January, probably more in line with what's really happening in the economy, given the Omicron, you know, surge that we had, a lot of people were missing work, you know, out of work because of that. Businesses were having to shut down because of lack of workers or lack of traffic. So, you know, there's probably the ADP report was much more accurate as to what was happening with employment in December 
uh, and in January than probably what we saw with the BLS because of the adjustments. But again, this is, this is all pretty much grain of salt stuff. If you really want to take a look at what's happening in the economy, labor force participation rate is the thing to really look at. Now, that number did tick up to 62.2%, so that's good. But that's still even lower than we were pre-pandemic, which is dramatically lower than where we were financial crisis, which is lower than we were in the dot-com crisis. So the labor force participation rate has continued to decline. And you can't just blame that on people retiring out of the labor force. Because first of all, we saw people that are retired going back to work. Not surprising. Why? They don't have any money to live on. Average Americans, 80% of America has less than $500 in the bank for an emergency. They have less than one year salary saved up for retirement. Retirees are going to be working for the most part. You know, it's not this idea anymore of getting to 65 and kicking off the bucket and saying, hey, I'm going to sit on my front porch with a dog named Blue and watch the sunset. That just doesn't happen for a vast majority of Americans. So not surprisingly, seeing retirees return back to work. But when you take a look at the 25 to 54 year old bracket, which is the group that should be working, right? Out of the house, working, not living on mom's couch. That group also has had a very sharp fall off in labor force participation. It did recover somewhat, but still much lower than when we were pre-pandemic. So where are all those people, right? Are they, you know, they literally sitting at home on mom's couch? Well, I don't know, but we're gonna see over these next few months, how that begins to recover. Now, this is going to play into the Fed, of course, as they begin to really talk about, We've this is February, next month, that's the meeting. Right now, there is a 1.42% chance. So, I mean, 142% chance, apologies, 142% chance the Fed will hike rates at least once at the next meeting. Uh, there is a rising probability, and this, this employment report certainly feeds into that, that, they could hike rates as much as half a basis point at the next meeting. So, again, the Fed is about to become a much, a, a much more active participant in the financial markets. So, you know, this sloppiness and volatility that we've seen the first part of the year, we're probably not past that yet. As they begin to hike rates and reduce their balance sheet, that's going to put more pressure on corporations, earnings, profit margins. And again, once companies begin to have to start protecting profit margins, they start doing things like automating jobs. Uh, layoffs begin to happen. We're going to start to see that kind of other side of this equation as we get further out into this year. So again, there's, there's quite a few things to be paying attention to as we start to move forward. And, and of course, this all really comes to a head in March when we began to see a lot of this action by the Fed. So again, watch these employment reports, uh, watch the inflation reports this week. Those are certainly going to play into kind of the attitude for the financial markets. Now, talking about the markets, we did have that rally. So two weeks ago, <clears throat> markets were exceptionally oversold. And we said, hey, we're probably going to get a rally next week. We got that rally fairly decent week last week had a very sharp rally back right to the 50-day moving average, failed at that point, and have come down a little bit. Now, on Friday, uh, you know, thanks to Amazon and their earnings, that kept the markets a little bit void on Friday. But again, we've had this very sharp advance, this kind of reflexive rally. And, and the problem now is we're kind of in no man's land. We're, we're not overbought. We're not oversold anymore. Markets have recovered. The buy signal is about halfway through its process. It does suggest there is some more room to move to the upside. We'll see how the first few days of this week work out. 
But this is a very challenging point. Um, as we talked about previously, use this rally to rebalance risk in your portfolio. If you didn't like that decline that you had in the first couple of weeks of January, it says you've had you, that you've got too much risk in your portfolio. So go sell some stuff, raise a little bit of cash, take some profit, stuff that hasn't been performing well, let it go. Stuff that's been performing well, keep that, but trim it back a little bit, take a little bit of profit out of it. But rebalance some of that risk in your portfolio. Use this rally because there's a real possibility we could retest lows in the next month or so, particularly if the Fed and if a lot of this inflation data is a lot stronger than expected. So we've got a lot more to get into. One of the things we'll talk about this morning, though, is the Fed going to be kind of one and done in terms of hiking rates? If you take a look at what's happening economically and what's happening with the yield curves, uh, there's a lot of data compiling that is currently suggesting the Fed won't be able to hike rates nearly as much as they expect. We'll talk about that after the break. I'm your host, Lance Roberts for The Real Investment Show. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Are you leaving thousands in Social Security money on the table? Prepare to properly claim your Social Security at our next virtual Lunch and Learn. What boomers need to know about Social Security. Your claiming choices now can affect your loved ones later. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for our next RIA Advisors Virtual Lunch and Learn. Thursday, February 10th at noon. What boomers need to know about Social Security. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com, realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. It is, of course, uh, is it Tuesday yet? <laughs> Almost. Just, just Monday. Almost. <laughs> just a few hours. Yeah. Um, so a couple of things uh, on the website right now. If you go to realinvestmentadvice.com, uh, we have our new uh, interview. Every Friday, I'm now doing an interview with Adam Taggart over at Wealthion, and uh, we have a 20, 30-minute conversation about kind of wrapping up the week. Uh, we post that up on Saturday. So if you go by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, right there under our latest videos, um, you'll see, well, you'll see all of them. Um, our latest kind of featured video, our, which was our recent kind of candied coffee as well. So again, that's kind of, you know, all on the website now to help you just kind of keep up to date with what we're doing and kind of what we're thinking. So, um, okay, so a couple of things here as we uh, kind of start talking about you know, the Fed and, and what to expect. You know, the, 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 the Fed is, is, of course, right now, that's the biggest risk to stocks at, at, the, at the moment. That's the most visible risk. Um, once they begin to reduce the monetary accommodation that they've been doing over the last year. And again, we kind of have to step back. If, you, if, if you're not familiar with what happened, you know, it's, it's kind of an, for, there, I mean, there's a lot of people that have just, kind of see the markets go up and they go, wow, market's doing great. But the issue was is that the market did great because of the massive surge of liquidity that had nowhere to go. 
And this is an important point as we talk about where we are in the financial markets and, and the recovery that we've seen, because a lot of the recovery, both in earnings as well as corporate profits and, and all these things, has to do with the fact that you injected $5 trillion of fiscal liquidity directly into households. And, of course, they went to go spend it. You know, we talked about this last week, you know, right in the middle of, of, you know, the COVID economic shutdown. We're all supposed to be locked down at our houses, not talking to anybody, you know, social distancing, et cetera. And you go to a Lowe's or a Home Depot and there's people driving around the middle of Home Depot testing out riding lawnmowers. I mean, you know, it's just, you know, it's just crazy. I mean, the place was packed with people because they had all this money to spend and nowhere to spend it. So you had, you know, what I'll do, I'm going to fix up my house. I'm going to build a home office because uh, since I've got to be working at home, I'm going to, you know, get a new computer and I'm going to, you know, fix up my home office and landscape my yard and, you know, all those type of things. Right. So uh, pool, pool companies had a surge in people building pools because people were like, well, I can't go anywhere, so I'll just build a pool in my backyard. Right. So pool companies were just brimming over with activity. So all that fed right back into the economy because of all that spending. Of course, that boosted corporate profits and, you know, earnings and all those type of things. So, you know, the problem now, though, is that that surge of fiscal liquidity is now over and it doesn't appear to be at this point that there is any more coming. Now, maybe the the Democrats will get themselves together, maybe pass a bill here or something before the midterms. But at the moment, that doesn't seem very likely. We'll, we'll see what happens. The second thing, of course, was the Federal Reserve that was injecting $120 billion a month in QE. They were buying ETF, bond ETFs. Uh, they were buying TIP ETFs. Mortgage-backed securities. I mean, you know, the, the Fed was in there just liquefying credit markets as best they could to ensure that we didn't have any type of repeat of the 2008 financial crisis. See, that, and, that, and that's the biggest fear of the Fed. The, the Fed is still suffering PTSD from the financial crisis. <laughs> and now every time there's even a smidge of a worry of a concern that we could have an economic disruption, they kind of go overboard with monetary policy. Good example of this was back in 2011 under President Barack Obama at the time, we had the debt ceiling debate, right? So this was that summer where Japan was impacted by the tsunami earthquake disaster and, nu and nuclear disaster, birth of Godzilla, all that happening all at one time in Japan. And at the same time that's going on, we've got this debt ceiling debate, right? We're going to default on our debt if we don't raise our debt ceiling. Threats from S&P, they're going to downgrade the debt rating of the United States. It's terrible. We're all going to go and live in dark ages. And so they came up with this great idea that, you know, they were going to establish this bipartisan committee to come up with a trillion dollars worth of cuts. And this bipartisan committee had until... January the 1st of 2013 to come up with this trillion dollars worth of cuts or a trillion dollars worth of spending cuts were going to be just spit out across, you know, the, the government. And they were going to trim a trillion dollars off of spending. Now, that's a lot of good behind that idea, by the way. Was executed terribly, but there was, a, <laughs> was a, at least an attempt to slow the rate of spending. 
there's much easier ways to do it, just like getting rid of the the baseline budgeting. But you know, <laughs> you know, you could have just done something, right? So they put this thing into place, and of course, this bipartisan committee never did anything, never came up with any cuts at all. And so as this deadline approached, that this trillion dollars worth of cuts was going to get impacted, and and beginning in 2013, Ben Bernanke came out, launched QE to make sure that we wouldn't have any type of financial dis- economic financial disruption because of all these spending cuts that were just going to happen automatically. Of course, these trillion dollars in spending cuts, they did occur, but they were spread out over 10,000 different agencies, and so nobody really even noticed it. And so we had this market that just had all this money flowing into it, but the, the financial crisis, the fiscal cliff never occurred. So we just sent the markets running off in 2014, 15, 16. Overreaction by the Fed. So here we are again. March of 2020, shut down the economy. Fed panics, dumps $120 billion a month in QE. But it starts these other, all these other programs are monetizing debt for the PPP program, the et cetera, buying, buying high-yield bonds to make sure that junk bonds don't go into fall. I mean, just really overreacted to a great degree, sent the markets off screaming. And that's fine, except now we've created the biggest deviation on record between the price of the markets and their long-term exponential growth line. And, I mean, we're talking about a deviation from that exponential growth line that dwarfs the dot-com bubble. Eventually, that reverses, and it won't be pretty. But the point here is, is that the Fed has now created an environment that is solely dependent on them. The market for the last 12 years has been trained that, oh, don't worry, every time there's a dip in the market, the Fed's going to come bail them out. And so far, they've been right. Been reading some articles lately. Well, don't count on the Fed coming in to bail out the markets this time. They will. Again, the Fed remains traumatized from the 2008 financial crisis, a guarantee that they never would have that happen again. thought it was interesting. Janet Yellen once said about 2014, 2015, we'll have, never have another financial crisis in our lifetime. And then 2008, uh, 20 came along. Um, you know, financial crises are going to be something we live with now. It's going to be the 100-year events that happen every few years. And this is because of the distortions that we've done to the financial markets. You're aware of this. And my point here about all this, and this is really kind of the point of our newsletter this weekend, is that as soon as the Fed starts hiking rates, they're going to cause a problem both economically and financially. And they likely won't be able to hike rates nearly as much as they expect. You know, there's there's expectations right now from most of the major kind of the major banks, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, et cetera, that the Fed will hike at least a percent and a half from zero. So we'll go from zero to one and a half percent on Fed funds rate. We'll not even get close to that level before the Fed is having to back off because we're already starting to see signs of economic weakness. Uh, the manufacturing indexes are beginning to peak and roll over here. The services indexes are starting to weaken here a bit. You know, 
just kind of a, a variety of leading indicators are starting to tell us that already that surge of economic growth that was all driven by that artificial surge of liquidity has now peaked and is beginning to weaken. And not surprising, right? We, we, we pulled forward all this consumption. This is kind of the interesting thing, I think, that comes out of, you know, the mainstream economists is that we put $5 trillion into the economy People ran out and bought stuff, right? So we pulled forward all that consumption. And now these economists think it's like, oh, this is a normal type of economic recovery. No, it's not. And because you don't have that type of liquidity in the markets to continue to drag forward more future consumption, right? We don't have any more programs that are giving people money so now they can go you know, borrow from the future even further out. So now we have this kind of big void here in the future where people say, well, I've, I've, you gave me money. I went and bought my new car. I went and bought my used car. I went and bought my riding lawnmower, whatever it was, because, you know, I have a 12 square foot yard in my apartment to mow. So I, I've bought the things that I want to buy. So I've got it. So now I'm really just kind of buying the stuff that I need just to, to live for now because I've already bought the big ticket items, right? So that's pulling, and that was stuff that maybe I was going to eventually buy, but I wasn't going to buy it today. But you give me a check today, I'll go ahead and buy it. So now there's this kind of big void that we're going to hit later this year and first part of next year where we drug forward all that that consumption that would have happened in that time space we pulled that forward into last year so now we're about to get to that point where what was dependent or what we were depending on to create economic growth is now no longer there and this is going to be precisely at the moment where the fed is trying to hike rates and tighten monetary policy and again like i said think they're going to run into that wall much quicker than they expected articles on our website realinvestmentadvice.com be right back after the break The Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. Are you leaving thousands in Social Security money on the table? Prepare to properly claim your Social Security at our next virtual Lunch and Learn. What boomers need to know about Social Security. Your claiming choices now can affect your loved ones later. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for our next RIA Advisors Virtual Lunch and Learn. Thursday, February 10th at noon. What boomers need to know about Social Security. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. Realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to the... And welcome back to the show this morning. You know, P.T. Barnum once said there's no bad publicity, Right. No matter what kind it is, good, bad, or different. Joe Rogan is learning this valuable lesson right now that uh, <laughs> despite all the, the lashback against the Joe Rogan Experience podcast, uh, the CEO of Spotify just came out and said, silencing voices is a very slippery slope. And he's absolutely right. But 
you know, this is just a ton of national press. It's publicity money can't buy. Yeah, it really is. And, and again, it doesn't really matter if it's good or bad. <laughs> People will listen to you just to figure out what the hell everybody's talking about, right? So, you know, this is this is going to be good. Um, so a couple of things here as, as you know, we we're talking about, you know, kind of moving forward. You know, this year there's going to be a, a lot of, shall we say, disappointment and expectations. Earnings are going to disappoint. We're going to see earnings get downgraded, but it'll be done behind the scenes so you won't actually notice it. So companies will still beat earnings. It'll just be much lower levels of earnings they're beating. But And this is something that Yield's already telling you. We just had a question a second ago on our YouTube chat. So if you're watching our YouTube, jump on, ask a question. We do monitor that. But just asking about why real yields are still negative. And the reason is, is because we're heading towards a recession sooner than later. And again, talking about this pull forward of consumption, lack of liquidity, all this type of thing, that's going to slow economic growth. Now, in the short term, rates can move up here because of expectations the Fed's going to hike rates. And that's kind of what you would expect to happen. However, once the Fed starts hiking rates, everything starts to kind of buckle at that point and yields are going to fall. Inflation is going to decline later this year because of slowing economic growth. You're already starting to see that peak. Um, yes, we're seeing wage inflation, but that's only occurring really in the very lowest wage paying earning sectors. So it exacerbates the level of, of kind of wage growth that we see. But it's mostly leisure and hospitality is where you're seeing a lot of that wage growth. It's not really affecting the higher levels. And so once those jobs are full and we're back to, and we're very close to that level now of being back to where the all the jobs that are needed are there, you're going to start to see those begin to peak off. And then also, too, in that sector, importantly, is that when rage pressures reach a certain level, companies will opt to automate a job rather than hire an employee. And unfortunately, in the leisure and hospitality sector, in a lot of ways, there's a lot of those jobs that you can actually automate. Cashiers, you replace with a kiosk, right? Um, more and more automated machines to perform manual tasks. We're seeing that not only just in the leisure and hospitality sector, but we're seeing it across all aspects, construction, et cetera. So you're starting to see, you know, as, as artificial intelligence and robotics continues to advance, we're seeing more and more of these jobs that were once considered, you know, necessary and that somebody had to do it, they're now being automated. And it's not surprising. Look, if, if, if at some point the cost of labor and we've had this conversation before about minimum wages. But if there's a point in time where the cost of hiring an employee, where I've also got to provide health care benefits, pay time off, sick leave, deal with the nonsense of them not showing up for work on time or calling and coming in late, you know, whatever it is. When I add all that nuisance cost on top of the salary cost and at some point i can say well you know i can buy this robot to do that job and yeah it's a it's a big outlay right now but over the course of three years it pays for itself companies will start to, to opt for those replacements 
And we're seeing this all through the industry. Again, uh, walk into a McDonald's. First thing that happens when walks into McDonald's, there's a big kiosk in front of you that says, place your order here. <laughs> so, you know, we're going to see more, more, more and more of that is coming. And again, it's not a good thing either. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, Grubhub creates a lot of jobs for delivery drivers. And I think it's interesting because, you know, as an individual myself, my wife and I rarely use that service because it's expensive for us. I mean, it's like if I'm going to order, you know, tacos, <laughs> you know, there's 35% more added to the cost of the taco for delivery and all this other stuff, right? And, I, you know, I think with generations coming up that are being raised on this, there's going to be a, a cost consequence paid down the road for that. But they do, but these companies do create jobs, but they're not real high-wage-paying high jobs. And again, the question becomes, at what point can we replace Uber drivers with drones, right? This has been one of the, the upcoming aspects that we're talking about for a while. I remember for a couple of years ago, we were talking about uh, Amazon was experimenting with drones to deliver packages, same-day delivery. So I put on a drone, everybody in Texas gets out a shotgun, it's open season. <laughs> but drone delivery is a thing, right? And, and so the goal of every company is to reduce labor to the lowest common denominator because it's expensive. Labor is the most expensive part of any business. And it's also the, the biggest headache to deal with. It's not, you know, it's not just the salary and the payroll taxes. But now everybody wants benefits. Everybody wants a 401k plan. Everybody wants healthcare, you know, uh, stuff. Everybody wants time off. They want a safe space. You know, they want all these things, right? Those, and those are fine that employees want those. That's, I'm not arguing that you should or should not have them, but it's a cost, right? And, it's, and, it's, and every time we keep asking for more and more stuff, it increases the cost of producing whatever the end product is. And this is always kind of a fascinating discussion because I had this conversation with Adam Taggart uh, on Friday uh, off record. But we were talking about why, you know, what could we do to, you know, bring back more jobs to America? And the real answer is you can't. Because we outsource labor-intensive projects to the lowest cost of labor. And that's not in the US. So we outsource all this. And then we complain about the fact that we've outsourced all these jobs to the lowest cost producer. Why don't we keep those here? Right? We have we have everybody here to produce it because you want too much stuff. You have an unreasonably high level of expectation for what your standard of living should be in the US. And most people don't realize this. If you make $30,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of income earners everywhere else in the world. And so, but here, everybody thinks the, everybody should make $150,000 a year. That was a recent survey. Interviewed a bunch of millennials. They said, well, everybody makes about $150,000 a year, right? No. <laughs> it's like $55,000 a year. But, hey, thanks for, thanks for playing. But see, we have this unrealistically high expectation of what a standard of living should be in the U.S. And so as a function of that, we have to outsource those jobs. 
if you want to bring back those jobs, you've got to be willing to have the same demands that those workers have. No 401k plan, no health care benefits paid for. You get you get paid $5 an hour and that's what you get. The rest is up to you. And right now I can already hear people screaming, well, that's not fair. No, it's not fair. It's not fair the way we think about being fair. But it's fair everywhere else in the world. And again, we've created this culture in the U.S. that we deserve more. Right? We, this is why everybody looks at the U.S. and go, they're a bunch of entitled pigs. They want everything. Let's raise, that's, the, that's the culture we raised. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just what we've done. And we just all feel like we deserve more. You know, even people making $15 an hour make more than most other people in the world. If you want to really feel rich, go to Africa for a couple of months and hang around there. I spent about, I spent about nine months in Africa, northern coast of Africa. And if you want to feel wealthy, go hang out there for a while. But this is, this is the problem that we've got going forward, and this is going to continue to evolve. And this is why we have these calls for socialism and socialistic outcomes, et cetera. And, you know, be careful what you ask for, because if you want to be like everybody else in the world, socialism is a great way to get there. You know, it was the golden goose of capitalism that created this unrealistic expectation of a standard of living in the first place. And now you're doing everything to kill the golden goose, and that's not a really great outcome. But the point is, is that we're heading down that pathway, and that does not bode well for economic growth. The mistake we made in March of 2020 was creating this socialistic experiment of sending money to households and everybody liked that outcome short term it's now become a fixture of monetary policy every time we have a crisis this will be the the first advent that government goes to but every time they do this it erodes long-term economic prosperity for all be right back after the break Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Are you leaving thousands in Social Security money on the table? Prepare to properly claim your Social Security at our next virtual Lunch and Learn. What boomers need to know about Social Security. Your claiming choices now can affect your loved ones later. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for our next RIA Advisors Virtual Lunch and Learn. Thursday, February 10th at noon. What boomers need to know about Social Security. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com, realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show.
welcome back to the show. Of course, it is uh, getting ready to wrap up this Monday edition as we get uh, ready to head into the week. Uh, futures are eh, flattish. They're up a little bit this morning. You know, kind of a, a still markets, uh, as I said earlier, markets are not overbought. They're also not oversold. Unfortunately, we're kind of in no man's land right now. So it's very difficult to make any type of reasonable presumption about where asset prices will go from here. There's getting to be a larger kind of debate now between are we in a bull market or are we in a bear market? And we certainly have some setup here that is very symptomatic of a bear market, right? You had a sell-off. You had a rally back to the 50-day. It failed. And the next thing that should happen is you should, if we are in a a bear market cycle now, I'm not saying we are, just follow me through for a second. If we are in a bear market cycle, then we should retest and break the lows that we had in January. Markets will decline lower, get another rally, and then kind of wash, rinse, and repeat. And there's, you know, when you start to overlay what's happening economically, which we're going to see the economy slow down, we're going to see wage pressures come down, we're going to see, as we were talking about in the last segment, wage pressures are going to come down. Inflation is going to come down. Inflation should be back down towards around the 2 2.5% level by the end of this year on a year-over-year growth rate. So as that happens, right, we're going to have this reversion in attitude. Attitude by the Fed, attitude by governments, attitude by markets, right? So this is this is going to become an issue about earnings growth, which is has likely peaked, and we'll likely see some very sharp reversions in that. So there's there is a good case to be made that we're going to see more volatility and more downside to markets this year. Now, that's that's one case. The other case, of course, is that the bull market remains intact. And we're just going through a correction process and onward and upward. Earnings growth. So on that side, I mean, you can point to earnings growth. Valuations have come down here over the last couple of weeks. Not a lot, but a little. Right now, the Fed is still doing $190 billion a month in QE, right? But earnings are, even if earnings come back a bit, earnings are still strong. The question is the sustainability of all that. So there is, there is really a case to be made on both sides, and this is a very difficult position because we're kind of right in the middle of that decision point. So if you get super bearish and the market runs on up, then you're going to wind up trying to chase markets higher, and that almost guarantees you to jump back into the markets exactly the wrong time. Or the other side is, is you're going to bet the, mar the bull market's here, you go all in, and the market's not going to be going up and it goes down. And so, so I'm saying like any decision you make right now has about a 50-50 chance of being wrong. And so this is why we talk about small steps, small things, make small moves, 401k plans, just, just adjust a little bit. If you didn't like the decline in January, there's, look, there's nothing wrong underperforming the markets. You know, this is you know, the, the media wants to turn this into a whole competition. It's like, oh, you got to beat the markets every year. No, you don't. You just want to make money. That's that's it. Just want to make some money. 
You want to grow your values, right? You want to try to make sure your asset prices, your savings are outpacing inflation over time. That's, that's all you're shooting for here. It's not, we're not trying to get rich quick. We're just trying to make sure our savings adjust for purchasing power in the future. That's it. So if you didn't like that decline in January, it upset you, kept you up at night, take a little risk off the table for the time being until we can figure out where this market's headed. Then we can get back in. Yes, you're going to underperform near term. That's okay. It's better than the alternative, which is outperforming on the way down. <laughs> so, you know, we've got to align our expectations. And, you know, I got, I got this email over the weekend from a guy. It's like, I'm really interested in having you manage my money for me. I just want 14% a year annual return so I can retire when I'm 65. I was like, thank you very much for sending the email. We're not your shop. The reason is, is that 14% annualized rates of return are above the long-term averages. And, and in order to do that, you're going to have to take very speculative risk. And if you take on very speculative risk, you're going to wind up losing a lot of money. And that is not the business that I'm in. And it's a business I don't want to be in. Because it never turns out good, and you know, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. You know, Mike and I talk about this all the time. We're like we're the world's worst plumbers because, you know, we treat, you know, we spend more time focusing on our clients' money than we do our own. Because our clients are very important to us, and we want to make sure that they're meeting their goals. And so we treat their money just like it's our own. And I think that's the right attitude to have as, as a fiduciary manager. And you've got to be concerned about that. And you've got to be concerned about making the right decisions. And it doesn't mean that every decision is going to be right. Right? You're going to make, you're going to make bad decisions sometimes. You're going to buy something that goes down. You're going to sell something that goes up. That's just part of the game. Right? You've got to, you've got to understand that that is the rules. That's part of the game. Right? That's just going to happen. And you got to be okay with that. You just got to say, okay, but made a mistake. Pfft. Sell it. Do whatever you need to do to, to, to solve that mistake. And then start over. The problem that we make as investors, though, is that we hang on to mistakes and we don't fix them. And so we keep hoping the mistakes will fix themselves. And this is one of the the you know, kind of the, the premises of buy and hold is like, oh, well, just, just buy and hold stuff. And if it goes down, it'll eventually come back. That's true. It will. Doesn't mean that it fixed the mistake, though. If I spend five years losing money and getting back to even, I didn't make any money for five years. So even though I got my money back, I, I lost, A, five years of my time to save and invest for for retirement, and I lost the annualized compounded rate of return I was supposed to get over those five years. So the mistake didn't fix itself. It may have fixed itself by just getting back to even, but it didn't fix my problem. It was still a mistake, and it still cost me long term. And this is the thing that we, we forget in this casino that we've created out of the financial markets, is that losses matter, and they matter much more than missing out on gains. I can make gains any time, but I can't make up losses because what I can't make up when I lose money is I can't make up the time lost over time. Now, 
Does that mean that you, that your portfolio never goes down in value? No, that's not what it means. What we're talking about here is catastrophic losses, 30, 40, 50% losses. 5, 10% declines, that's just part of markets, right? 15% losses, 20, 25, 30. Those get to be what we call catastrophic losses that take a very long time to recover completely. So again, it's just, you know, we're in, you know, right now, as I said, we're kind of in that no man's land where any decision you make is likely going to be the wrong one. It's just where we are. So this is a time not to make any big moves, but make some make some small changes, right? Use this rally over the last week that we had to kind of reduce some risk. Rebalance things. Things that weren't working, and kind of just a good process to go through here is, look, look at your portfolio and say, what has not been working for me? I own this small cap fund, and it's underperforming everything I own right now. Sell it. I have this energy fund that's just killing everything I've got. Awesome. Keep it, but trim it back a little bit because energy is way overbought now. If it was 5% of your portfolio when you put it in or 2% or 3% or whatever the number was, whatever it was when you first bought it as a percentage of your overall portfolio, just trim it back to that. So if it's now 3% of your portfolio and it was originally 2 sell 1%. Book those gains, put that money into cash. You don't have to go reinvest it. What would you invest it in right now? Again, we're not sure what the market's going to do. So why would I go buy anything at this moment other than just holding some cash for right now? Then once the market determines what it's going to do, hey, we're now in a bear market or, hey, we're in a bull market. Now it's much easier to make a decision. Small changes. All right. Um, on the website, of course, get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Our latest newsletter is out. It's called Fed One and Done. We kind of go through our whole theory on why we suspect the Fed won't be able to hike rates nearly as much as they expect. That's on the website. Just click the newsletter link. Make sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. We only send you two pieces of email a week. That's the newsletter on Saturday and our technically speaking post on Tuesday, just to kind of keep you up to date. Um, but also on the website every day, we've got three minutes on markets and money. We've got our daily radio program that you're listening to now, but the full recording, edited recording is there. We've got special, you know, podcasts that we do from time to time, like Candy Coffee or um, like our podcasts we're doing on a weekly basis now with, with Wealthion. Those are all on our website, available for your daily blog post. Um, one out today already talking about the inflation deflation debate. We're going to talk, we're going to be talking a lot more about inflation versus deflation this week as we start to see the inflation numbers come in and what's happening with the inflation pressures and where they're coming from in the economy. That's all coming up this week. That's going to weigh on markets as well, because that's all going to determine what the markets expect the Fed to do next. But it's all on our website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. That's realinvestmentadvice.com. And speaking of three minutes on markets and money, stick around. That'll be posted up here shortly. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, at Lance Roberts, as well as on our website, realinvestmentadvice.com. And check out our new platform, simplevisor.com, the do-it-yourself platform to help you manage your money better. Simplevisor.com. See you back here tomorrow.
to his bad swerve.